you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation 15. We'll look at the first part of Revelation 15 today. The text is also in the bulletin. Let's see. Um, yeah, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we could do nothing better than to give our full attention to your word and receive it and trust it and and do it. So we pray that you would help us to do this as your spirit draws us to your son now as we hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. So, um, I actually thought about titling this sermon, Revelation the Musical! Exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, maybe that seems strange to you, that, that idea. Imagining the book of Revelation as a musical. Think of this scene. Here are the martyrs. They're slaughtered for following Jesus. Now they're standing in the Lord's presence and watching as seven angels prepare to carry bowls full of God's wrath into the world, to pour it out into the world, to unleash their plagues and bring total justice upon their persecutors. And the slain saints break into song to celebrate what's happening. Everybody in perfect unison, like it's been choreographed, for the musical interlude before the scene cuts back to the action. Uh, it's kind of like a musical. Aren't, aren't musicals supposed to be fun, though? <laughs> and maybe just a little bit sappy? Uh, this is pretty serious stuff. Maybe better for the opera than for a musical. Um, but seriously, though, Revelation is is punctuated throughout by songs and by praises, by saints breaking out into choruses to mark the advancing storyline. But it's not entertainment, right? That's why it's sort of funny to us, is that a musical is entertaining. It's not entertainment. It isn't even intended as fine art like an opera. That's not the point of it. The book of Revelation is punctuated by these songs, by these outbursts of singing and praise and worship, because a worship service is punctuated by songs. A liturgy is punctuated by songs and by praises and by choruses like this. This book reveals a liturgy. It reveals the heavenly liturgy of God's kingdom, and it invites all of us to join and to participate. In a sense, the whole book in general, and this passage in particular, is a call to worship. It's an invitation to church. It's an appeal for you to join the citizenship of heaven, the people of Christ, 
the people who sing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. It might not sound terribly appealing at first, right? The martyr's song, the Song of the Lamb, who was slain. After all, the ones who are singing this song met a grisly end in this life. Come and join us following Jesus. Who knows where this journey might take you? Well, we know where it took them. But the song, the subject matter of the song, the content, the substance of the song, it is appealing to so many people. And I like this, uh, <clears throat> this paragraph here from N.T. Wright in his commentary on the book of Revelation. He says, what is it that attracts people to the Christian message? And he offers up several answers to that question. He says, some will have been drawn in by the kindness and gentleness of a pastor who looked after them in a moment of crisis. Some will have gone to a meeting where they were able to express all kinds of questions and doubts and where they were received with courtesy and respect and given such answers as were available, but it'll be the courtesy and respect that has done the trick. Others again may have found themselves at a major turning point in their lives and not knowing where else to go for guidance may have come to the church and found more than they expected. This short but powerful song gives a quite different sort of reason why not only individuals, but nations will come and worship the true and living God. Judgment will be done. Justice will be done. A grateful community will thank the judge from the bottom of its collective heart. Right, so this is a beautiful thing to those who have suffered injustice in this world, to those who've, whose loved ones have suffered injustice. It's a beautiful thing to those whose brothers and sisters in the church have suffered injustice. This is the beautiful thing. God is just. God is true. God will take care of his people. Our God delivers his people and he rains plagues of his wrath down upon the unjust and wicked persecutors. That's important. That's necessary. That's beautiful and compelling. If you've tasted injustice or if you've witnessed injustice against God's people, then the martyr's song calls you to join them, join the martyrs in worshiping the God of justice. Uh, in recent years, there have been a lot of people who've given up on the church and they quit coming to church altogether, quit coming together for worship. And there have been a lot of polls taken and a lot of books written about why that is, why people have given up on the church and about what the church should do differently to fix those problems, to stop people from leaving or to get people back. Various reasons are always cited as to why different people give up on the church, but uh, Eugene Peterson uh, in his study of the book of Revelation, he's got a book on it called Reversed Thunder, which is a good book. Um, he's identified one reason that is relevant to us this morning. He says that many people will give up on the church because of a frustrated desire for justice. Christians cry out for justice in prayer. We don't just want it. We plead God for it. And we don't just want a nice, fair world where everybody can get along. We want a world where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God-centered justice. And we ask him for it. And we ask him, how long until you come and make things right according to your will? 
And so often through the centuries, when we ask that question, it seemed like it goes unanswered. That prayer goes unanswered. It feels like waiting on God to come in judgment and to set things right is maybe waiting for something that might never actually happen. That's what it feels like. So Eugene Peterson writes, some people get frustrated waiting for God. They feel that things like worship, coming together for worship, it's a waste of time and energy. Something has to be done to fix the injustices that we perceive. And maybe maybe these people look to change the church, try to make it more relevant, make it more effective in the pursuit of justice, maybe, maybe make the people in it more zealous for real justice to go and achieve it. But it's likely that these people will never be satisfied and they'll leave. The desire for justice becomes a demand for justice. And the church is unable to meet those demands. We can't achieve it. Worship and preaching and singing and prayer and sharing bread and wine, these things aren't enough to fix what's obviously wrong in a broken world. So these people, in their frustration, they give up on worship, they give up on the church. But Jesus calls us to persevere, to stick with him, and to stick with his people. And Revelation is this call. It's a call to continue to follow the lamb who was slain, who never saw justice in his life. It's a call to faithfully endure hardships in his name. It's a call to participate in what he is doing, in his kind of life, what he's doing in his people, in his church. It's a call to worship God together as Christ's people in the world, to join the heavenly liturgy and to stick with it and to see it played out to its glorious end because there will be a glorious end. This world provides plenty of reasons to give up on the church, plenty of reasons to quit the church and quit associating ourselves with Christ and with his people. We've looked at these things uh, that are mentioned in verse 2. You got the beast and its image and the number of its name. Looked at that a few weeks ago. You got the devil attempting to lure Christ's people away from him. And he puts all kinds of pressures on us to conform to the world. He makes the world's version of power, uh, the world's avenues of power, seem more pleasant or more effective than whatever God's kingdom has going for it. He offers counterfeit religious activities. He offers counterfeit communities. The devil wants to make it easy for us to sell out, to give up on the gospel, because the gospel isn't enough to bring justice right now. He, He wants to make it easy for us to give up on God because God doesn't respond to our urgent prayers. The devil wants to make it easy to give up on the church because those people aren't changing the world. That's never going to happen with these people. But Jesus calls us to overcome all those pressures, to conquer all those pressures. And he promises, throughout the book of Revelation, he promises that it will be worth it to do so. Those who conquer, those who endure faithfully, those who follow Jesus to the end, shall see God come in his judgment and make all things right. They shall dwell with God in his kingdom of light. They shall sing of God's justice. 
and sing of the fulfillment of all of his promises. But that doesn't mean we see all these things or any of these things in this life, in this world. The saints who are singing this song in John's vision of heaven, they never saw justice in their lives on this earth. That's what you're signing up for as a Christian. The martyrs bore witness to Jesus and it cost them their lives. And now they're standing in heaven by the sea of glass. <clears throat> so the, the ancient Hebrew imagination that's shaped by uh, passages like Genesis 1 would have understood this vision in this way. When you look up into the sky, especially on a, a day like this, you see the expanse. You see what's called in Genesis 1 the firmament or the expanse. It's the blue vault above us like a sea, like a sea of waters through which we must pass in order to stand in the heaven of heavens, in the heaven of God's presence. You've got to go through that sea that's above us. That's what the ancient Hebrew imagination uh, would understand. <clears throat> in the book of Exodus, this is pictured as the people of God passed through the waters of the Red Sea. God brings them safely through the waters. They're led and they're protected by God, God who appears in a column of fire as they're delivered from their oppressors and their persecutors so that they could worship God on the other side, worship God in the land where he was taking them. And so here in Revelation, the martyrs have been delivered. And they stand here by the sea that's like glass, that's so calm mingled with fire, the fire of God. The martyrs have been delivered. They've been set free from all tyranny and injustice. They've passed through the waters. They stand on the other side of the sea. They've emerged victorious, but they all suffered injustice and they died before they saw that. Overcoming the beast looked not like... Uh, like, like not giving up on Christ. That's what it looked like. Like not giving up on Christ, not giving up on the gospel, not giving up on the church, not giving up on worship, even when it meant the end of their lives in this world, even when it got them killed. Their desire for justice was not fulfilled in this life. Your desire for justice might remain frustrated throughout this life. Overcoming, conquering, being victorious as a Christian doesn't mean you succeed in in ushering in God's ultimate justice into this world. Conquering doesn't mean that your Christian ideas of justice win all the political battles. Conquering doesn't, certainly doesn't mean that you forcibly impose God's justice on other people. It doesn't even mean that when the persecutors come for you, you're able to evade or resist capture. That's not what conquering means. Conquering means that you hold fast to Jesus, you trust in God's judgment, even if all you see in this life is injustice. But if you do hold fast to Jesus and trust in God's judgment and overcome all the pressures in this world to give up on the church, then one day you will be singing for joy over God's justice. It's a promise. That's the promise of this passage. Just like Moses and the people of Israel sang God's deliverance, Tim read about that in our Old Testament reading from Exodus 15. Go back and read that again and see all the parallels with the themes that are in this passage. Just like Moses sang God's deliverance after being brought through the Red Sea, faithful saints who stand in the Lord's presence in heaven will 
sing. And the content, the substance of our song will be God himself, his just and true ways, his universal lordship, his holiness and righteousness, even if none of these were apparent to us at the moment of our death. And it's not a song, they, they don't sing a song of victory because of, because of our, our innocence. It's not a song that extols our own righteousness as God's people. It's not a song celebrating our own vindication that we were on the right side of history after all. It's a song praising the Lord for his judgments because he alone is holy and he takes care of his people. Christians uh, know how incredible it sounds for people like us to sing the praises of God's justice. After all, don't we want to avoid God's justice? <laughs> we're, the one who, uh, we're the ones whose gatherings begin with the confession of sin, like we've already talked about. And the first thing we say in response to God's holiness is that uh, we don't deserve to stand in the judgment. We don't want to face his justice for our sin. But praise the Lord, who is just and true. He is just and true, and that's never changed It actually is just, it is righteous for us to stand and sing in his presence because of the salvation that's found in Jesus. God didn't suspend his justice in order to forgive us our sins. He has fulfilled all righteousness by forgiving us in Christ because Jesus went to the cross to receive the justice of God for us. This God is just and true. And it's in First uh, John. You know, the Apostle John who wrote Revelation writes this in another place. First John chapter 1. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins in Christ. And he's faithful and just to take care of his people and to finish, to complete, to fill up his righteous wrath by bringing total justice one day. The martyrs in Revelation 15 had been killed uh, by the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem and in the flow of the book of Revelation in its historical context, their deaths uh, would be avenged in the final judgment of Jerusalem, which is what the next few chapters is talking about. The angels with the bowls of God's wrath were preparing to move out against the injustices of rebellious Jerusalem. The martyrs in heaven saw the preparations of these angels And they worshiped as they witnessed the beginning of God's judgments, their cries for God's justice, those cries, how long they became songs of praise for God's justice. Finally, one of the things that we do as we gather for worship right now in this life on this earth is we faithfully testify that one day we will see God's justice. We sing our laments right now. We We ask our questions, how long? We ask God, doesn't our relationship mean anything to you? Why does it seem like you're not listening? We live with the tension of desiring justice on the one hand, but experiencing injustice on the other hand. We live in that tension, but we sing the praises of God's justice. Even now, we praise his justice for our forgiveness in Christ. And we praise in anticipation of that day when he makes all things right. But we proclaim that he, and he alone will do it, that he will turn our cries 
into songs. We testify that one day we will never lament again because his righteous acts have been revealed. And in that day, it says all nations, the whole world, will see how just and how true are his ways. You wait for it. You'll see it. Some people will leave the church unable to wait. And they'll never find what they're looking for anywhere else, but they'll leave anyway. But many more people will join us, it says in verse 4. All nations will come and worship. We need this God-centered vision of justice. That's what we need. We need this promise that we will sing of his great and amazing deeds of judgment. We need to hold on to the fact that, that King Jesus is true to his word, especially as pressure builds and threats against us grow. That's what it means to overcome, just to hold on to him. To conquer alongside of Jesus. Not, it doesn't mean to have enough power to make life comfortable for ourselves. Conquering and overcoming alongside of Jesus means that we endure with the faith and the hope and the love that are found in Jesus. So hold on to him. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, sometimes we wonder whether our relationship means anything to you, whether you will honor your word and take care of your people and bring your justice to the world. Forgive our doubts about your justice. Reassure us that you care more about our relationship than we ever could. We pray that you would restore to us a patient hope, a steady hope, a sure hope, that one day we will rejoice in the full revelation of your righteousness. Help us to testify to that good hope even now as we sing your praises with trust and with anticipation and with joy even now. And we pray that you would bring the nations into your house and add to the number of those who sing your great and amazing justice with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.